This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. G'day. Welcome to St Mark's. We're going to look at the Bible, so let's pray. Give us grace, O Lord, not only to hear your word with our ears, but also to receive it into our hearts and to show it forth in our lives. For the glory of your great name. Amen. Now, you and I are taught from an early age that life belongs to those who strive for it, those who grasp it. Think of some of the slogans that we throw around. No pain, no gain. When the going get tough, the tough get going. Luck is a dividend of sweat. You make your own luck in this world. The movie mogul Sam Goldwyn once said, the harder I work, the luckier I get. Or there's a theological version that you may have heard, and apparently a, a huge percentage of Americans believe is actually in the Bible. God helps those who help themselves. Now, we may believe more sophisticated versions of these slogans, but thoughts like these form part of the way we talk to ourselves and to the next generation. They're a powerful part of what we imagine life to be about. In the story of Jacob, a man several millennia older than us, we meet a character who is like us in many ways. He certainly thought that what life had to offer, he had to grab for, to strive after. He imagined life as a wrestle with his brother, with his uncle, with whoever might get in the way, and even in the end, with God. And that moment, his wrestle with God, will reveal the depth of his and of our misunderstanding about everything. As the great preacher Frederick Buechner puts it, power, success, happiness, as the world knows them, are his who will fight for them hard enough that peace, love and joy are only from God. Now, as we'll see, Jacob is humbled so that he can truly understand God's grace. That's what true blessing means, he discovers. And so as we plunge into his story together, I want to invite you to be ready to discover what Jacob, Jacob took a lifetime to discover. Now, as we turn today to the book of Genesis, we already know that Jacob is a very significant person. He's one of the fathers of the chosen people of Israel. They were used to calling God the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Now, Grandpa Abraham was the one whom God had called out of the night sky and made extraordinary promises to, that out of the chaos of humanity, with all its rebellion against God and its violence against one another, God would forge a nation through whom he would bless the world and bring his peace, giving them a land, giving them a blessing, making them a numerous people. Jacob, his grandson, is the one who really got the breeding program started. He was the father of the 12 tribes known as Israel. But when Jacob's story begins, we discover that he is a highly flawed character from a deeply dysfunctional family. And that's quite puzzling. Why is the chosen man so broken? Now, the little passage in Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 to 27, is just the beginning. Rebecca, Isaac's wife, is barren, just like her mother-in-law Sarah was. Only after Isaac prays does she become pregnant. It's quite clear from the story that God's intervention is needed to get this family breeding so that it, it can become that numerous nation that God promised. 
So Rebecca gets pregnant with twins. But in her pregnancy, she feels the strange sensation of the children inside her womb fighting one another, which must have made for very unpleasant physical sensations and certainly made her upset so that she asked God what was going on. And God said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples born of you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The elder shall serve the younger. So Rebecca hears that her family is destined to be divided, her boys ever at war with one another. And the outcome will be topsy-turvy, because instead of the older one, as is nature's way, getting the supremacy and carrying on the family name, I'm an eldest child, you can tell, the reverse will be true. And when the boys are born, they're an interesting pair, all right. Well, the first one comes out and he's covered in red hair. So he gets called Esau, which probably means hairy. It's an interesting way to be born, isn't it? An interesting name, but not far behind him, grasping his heel like he was making, trying to make sure that his brother didn't get too far ahead, was the boy that they called Jacob. His name, it's one of those interestingly ambiguous words, which means to grasp at the heels. But it also can mean to supplant or replace or even something like betray. And we find out that when this boy grows up, that he's also a quiet man, in contrast to his more macho and outgoing brother, a hunter. But that word quiet can also mean Smooth, in the sense of con man smooth. He's slippery. He's not quite straight with you. And these two boys divide their parents, we discover. Isaac, the father, likes Esau. After all, Esau brings him tasty meat dishes and Isaac has a taste for, for fresh meat. But Jacob is his mother's special boy. What a family. What a character Jacob appears to be. Crafty, quiet, clever, not manly and heroic. A trickster, not a champion. A grasper and a grafter. And sure enough, he will do, we find out, whatever it takes to grasp his inheritance from his older brother. There are two stories that show his cunning in tricking Esau. The first incident, in the first incident, he takes advantage of Esau's hunger and his stupidity, and gets him to sell his birthright. It must have meant nothing to a starving young man, or at least it seemed not to. We get the impression that Esau isn't the sharpest tool in the shed, to be honest, and he's driven by his stomach. He comes in from hunting, says he's hungry, sees that Jacob has prepared a stew, and says, can I have some of that? I would die to have some of that. Tucking into the steaming pot of stew seems somehow worth trading your inheritance for. I'm dying of hunger, he complains. He seems to believe it, literally. The second story is a more elaborate trick that Jacob plays on his dad and his brother, egged on by his mum. Isaac, now a blind old man, is now a blind old man, and he says to Esau, look, go and make me a beautiful meat dish. Catch me something, a, a goat, a wild goat, and I'll give you my blessing before I die as the older son. So Esau heads off into the forest to hunt for a nice wild goat. But mum, Rebecca, has overheard this. 
and she wants to get her boy, her favourite, Jacob, into the frame for the inheritance. So she calls Jacob. She says, get some goats from the flocks and cook up a stew for Dad and go in before Esau gets home when it's dark because he's blind, he won't see who it is, and get his blessing. And Jacob says, well, hang on a minute. If, what if I go in and he gives me a hug? You know, Esau, remember, Esau is hairy. I'm not. And I smell differently too because Esau's always out hunting. He kind of smells like the forest. He smells meaty and sweaty. So Rebecca got some goat skins, puts them on Jacob so that he can feel like his brother. It's a sort of absurd story, isn't it? Then Jacob goes in and let's face it, he blatantly, openly lies to his blind old dad. He says, I am Esau, your firstborn. Have some stew and bless me. And even when Isaac gets suspicious because, hmm, you don't sound like Esau, Jacob holds out his furry hands and Isaac totally buys it. He gives Jacob his blessing. And it's an extraordinary blessing. Hear the words that he says from Genesis chapter 27. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. And may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you. And blessed be everyone who blesses you. This is no ordinary blessing. It passes on the promises that the Lord made to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants. It says, You, my son, are the chosen one through whom God will bring about his restoration of the whole world. And that is that. How do you think Esau will take the news? How would you take it? Well, he's furious at Jacob, of course. Not that we feel particularly sorry for thick old Esau. Esau's just as greedy as Jacob is. But Esau and Isaac both realize that they've been duped by Jacob. And Esau says, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright. And now he has taken away my blessing. The will has been signed. The younger one has triumphed over the older. And that blows the family apart because Jacob has to flee for his life from his big brother who now wants to kill him. And with mummy's help again, he escapes. Now you may turn to the Bible hoping for some moral uplift. Perhaps you want to learn an edifying life lesson by hearing about a noble character, to find a holy example of loving behaviour or exemplary faith. But you're not going to find it here. In this story, what do we discover? A deeply dysfunctional family filled with flawed characters. They are sadly familiar to us, even millennia later. The inept and blind father the manipulative and controlling mother, the parents with favourites, the brothers who won't ever speak to one another again and fight over the inheritance. As they say, where there's a will, there's a family. Greed and power sit where love and affection should be. In several thousand years, things have not changed for families. And perhaps 
we are particularly noticing it too in this period of being locked in together, living on top of one another. Perhaps our flaws and our dysfunctions are all the more evident to us. But here's the puzzle. The family of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob are not just any family. They are the chosen people of God. These are the ones through whom the Creator says He will complete and fulfill His creation. How does it turn out that they are so flawed and dysfunctional? Why has God chosen such people as this? And more than that, Jacob becomes the inheritor of the promises, not despite his flaws, as if he's got some compensating characteristics and that's how God has worked. He actually becomes the inheritor of these promises because of them. It's his lies that bring him the blessing. His open untruth, his deceit, his grasping seems to have worked, at least for now. Jacob seems to believe that God helps those who helps them, who'll help themselves. And so he has helped himself to Esau's blessing and his inheritance. So what does this mean? Well, first of all, the Bible tells us that God's remedy to restore and renew his creation, to redeem human beings, you and me, from sin, is not to give us universal moral principles to learn or a grand ethical system, but to choose for himself a people. Through this people, he will bless and renew and restore his broken and dying world. He will bring healing. He will bring his peace, his wonderful peace. But he doesn't choose people because they are nice or because they help themselves or because they're of noble character. Even in this man Jacob, the father of Israel, there are deep character flaws. As we've seen, God chooses people not because of their virtues and abilities, but because of his grace to display his greatness and his glory. If you know your own character flaws, and I have to say, being shut in has perhaps given you more time to look, as it were, in the mirror and consider what you are like, to feel these flaws more sharply. They can feel like fate, can't they? They can feel inescapable and insurpassable, unbeatable, like a weight hanging over us. They can feel like you can't ever get over them. Your neediness or your anxiety or your greed or your vanity, your narcissism, your pettiness, your addictions, or mine. To make an inventory of these things would be more than I could bear for myself, to be honest. I've spoken to more than one person who said, I believe that the gospel is true, but when I consider what I'm like, I can't believe that God has chosen me when I honestly look at my flaws. How could he be calling me? But your flaws do not mean that God has overlooked you. Your flaws do not mean that God cannot work through you and in you. If God has chosen this deeply unworkable family with these dubious individuals, then he can certainly work in you. And he's capable of weaving even you, your sins into his tapestry of grace. That's the marvelous artistry of God that with such unpromising raw material, 
he completes an extraordinary work of art in his salvation of people, of human beings, which doesn't justify our flaws, of course, doesn't make them right. It doesn't make Jacob's lies not lies or somehow virtuous, but shows how extraordinary he is. God's plans are not thwarted by your flaws and dysfunctions. He may even use them. We may even intend to do evil, but find that God uses it for good. Jacob's lies were not good, but as we'll see, God used them. The history of Israel is a tale of murder, revenge, adultery, rape, and religious hypocrisy. And that's just for starters. Yet that horrible history brought forth the one perfect man, Jesus. Even the greatest evil of all, the execution of the beloved Son of God, turned out in God's grace and in his providence to be the greatest work of his love. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.